0: Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Uh, As Josh kindly said, uh, my name is Michael, and I am the lead pastor at Henson Baptist Church. uh, And I bring you greetings from that church. Uh, We pray for you all often. Uh, It has been great getting to know uh, Josh over these last uh, really few years. Uh, It's been a real pleasure to be able to work with him, uh, to get to know him, to to become a good friend. Uh, and, and from a distance to, to partner with you all. In some ways, I feel like the branch is like Henson Baptist South, right? Because there's so many people from Henson that have come here and have been blessed by this ministry. Lots of our students, Davey right there. Uh, so, and uh, my, my I've got one son who is planning on coming to Oregon State next year as a freshman, so you may even see him around. Uh, you also have blessed us, though, not only for uh, through your, our friendship with, with Josh, but uh, last year you sent us Stephen Brucker. And Stephen just uh, has, has finished the, the residency program at Henson. And this morning, I'm sure some of you know this this morning, he's preaching in a church up in Puyallup, Washington. We're really excited about that, praying that that might be a place uh, where the Lord lands him uh, longer term. Uh, well, th- this morning, and you know this because I think it was mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, but let me, let me just start by asking a question. It's a question that's connected to the title of the sermon, The Good Life. What, what is your picture of the good life? I want you to get that in your head. I want you to think about what is the good life that you are after? Lots of single people here this morning. So maybe the good life is a vision out there in the future of a happy family. You know, like married and and kids. Gathered around the table, maybe at holidays, right? Lots of joy, lots of laughter, no arguments, no sadness. Football on the TV, maybe OSU has a winning season <laughs> in some sport. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not. Maybe that's not your vision of the good life. Maybe your vision of the good life is uh, a really good job. You know, you've come to college, uh, you're an undergrad, maybe you're a graduate student, you have a career in mind, your hope is to, is to land uh, a good job, maybe even a high-paying job that gives a, a measure of financial freedom to your life and some of the luxuries and pleasures that a good-paying job brings. Or, or maybe you don't care if it pays a lot, you just want some work that's fulfilling. Or, or maybe your vision of the good life is, is being able to travel, see the world, I'm sure you've got an idea of what the good life is. Now, the reality, of course, is that for most of us, I dare say for all of us, reality doesn't measure up to our vision of the good life. We, we actually rarely, if ever, get there. Far from achieving the good life, oftentimes it feels as if our world's coming to an end, right? Um, all sorts of things happen in life that are not part of our vision. It's not working out the way we wanted it to work out. And in that kind of context, we often find ourselves wondering, where's God? I, th- I thought God was supposed to be here for me. I thought God was here to give me the good life. Where, where is he when, when that good life feels impossibly distant? We keep hoping, most of us, we keep, we keep trying. Hopefully, But be- before we die, before the world comes to an end, we'll get there. But often, we're pretty skeptical. And we begin to give up. All right, so what if, however, to reach the good life, the world actually does have to come to an end? What if rather than making a good life for ourselves in the here and now, what we really need is for God to bring us into the good life, ultimately in the hereafter. You know, the message of Christianity is that God does intend to give His people the good life. He intends to bring His people into a life that is abundant, it's secure, it's better than the best picture that we can imagine. The message of Christianity is also that he is going to have to bring this life, this world, as we know it, to an end in order to get us there. So the real question, I think, isn't where is God when it feels like my world's coming to an end. The question is, where are you? Where are you? Uh, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 47 48 today. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn there with me? Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read portions of it as we go along. Before we dive in, let me give you just a quick overview of the book of Ezekiel. Right? Uh, Ezekiel wa- was written by the prophet Ezekiel during the time of Israel's exile in, in Babylon. Uh, chap- chapters 1 to 3, one of the most amazing theophanies. A theophany is an appearance of God. One of the most amazing appearances of God in the entire Bible occurs is God shows up on his sort of mobile chariot throne in Babylon, of all places. What's God doing in Babylon? And he commissions Ezekiel to be his prophet to the exiled people of Israel. And then from chapters 4 all the way to 24, Ezekiel gives Israel in exile God's message for them. And it is a message of unrelenting Judgment. Some of the most gruesome, some of the most difficult passages to read in the whole Bible are in this section of Ezekiel. It feels like it just will not come to an end. Again and again, he says to these exiles, God's going to judge you. It's not repent before it's too late or God will judge you. It's No, it's too late. It is too late. Judgment is coming and there's nothing you can do about it. And here's why. And he he explains to them why. At the end of chapter 24, two things happen. Ezekiel is told that the siege on the city of Jerusalem has begun. God just reveals it to him. And as a picture of what that means and what's going to happen to the people back home, his wife dies. Just falls down dead. And he is not allowed to mourn her. Then in chapters 25... All the way until chapter 33, the focus shifts. Instead of judgment on Israel, Ezekiel is now given a series of judgments on the nations. And this is the beginning of a glimmer of hope for the people of God. That that God's not just picking on them, right? That, that, That God is the judge of the whole world. And God is going to judge the nations. In chapter 33 a fugitive from Jerusalem shows up. It's taken him, oh, anywhere from six months to a year and a half to get from Jerusalem to, to, to Babylon. And he announces that the city has fallen. The city is destroyed. The temple is burned. And on that day, Ezekiel's mouth is opened. He's been mute, actually, for over a year. Only able to speak when he has a prophecy to give, otherwise silent. And on that day, his mouth is opened. And from 34 on to the end of the book, it is a message of hope. It is a message that having judged his people, God is going to save his people. There's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be new life in Israel. God is once again going to be their shepherd. He's going to bring them to be with him. This is where one of the great prophecies of the new covenant, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is given. In chapter 36, the great vision in chapter 37 of the valley of dry bones, as as, as Ezekiel just speaks to this valley of dry bones, they don't have ears, they don't have light, they got nothing. And God uses the the preaching of his word to bring life to this great army, which represents Israel. And then, beginning in chapter 40 to the end of the book, chapter 48, uh, we're, we're given this vision of what life with God is going to look like. Uh, In in chapters kind of 40 to 46, what they're told is that that God has a plan. God has a plan to be with his people, and he has a man to make it happen. Now, in in, in chapter 47, uh, what they're told is, hey, people, you're going to be there. You're going to be there. They thought their world had come to an end. They thought there was no hope. The temple was burned. The the, the people all now are in exile. But God promises them that my people are going to be alive. They're going to be secure in my presence forever. And in these last two chapters of the book, chapters 47 and 48, Ezekiel gives us three pictures so that rather than fearing the end of the world, we'll actually welcome it with joy. Because it means being with God. All right, so uh, we're just going to look at these three pictures in chapters 47 and 48. And the first picture is the picture of the river of life. The river of life. I'll look at chapters 47, verse 1. Actually, I'd like to look at it too. And to do that, I need these. Chapter 47, verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river, and he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engliam." There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. and Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing." All right, so Ezekiel's vision here in these opening, you know, 12 verses, this final vision is what we call apocalyptic. Uh, What do I mean by apocalyptic? Apocalyptic is a genre. It's a type of writing. And one of the characteristics of apocalyptic is that it's symbolic. It's symbolic imagery that is designed to give us the perspective of heaven rather than the perspective of earth on events both current and future. Now, in chapters 40 to 46, we've got this apocalyptic vision of a future temple. We're sort of being presented with with what you might call theological architecture. Here, in chapter 47, we're being given theological geography. So the, the angel brings Ezekiel back to the entrance of the temple... And and there at the entrance of the temple, he notices a stream of water flowing out from the entrance. It's flowing east from under the temple itself. Now, the east gate is closed. The east gate is closed because God has entered through the east gate and he said, I'll never leave again. And so that gate is shut and never to be opened again. So, he can't go out the east gate. So, the angels got to take him out this other gate and, you know, they walk around the temple. And and when he gets around to see where the water, where where it's flowing, what he sees is that it's headed to the Arabah. That that is the, the depression of the Jordan River Valley. And then from there down into the Dead Sea. Now we know just from the text that the river is clearly supernatural and it's symbolic. There is no natural source of water underneath the temple, you know, on on the Temple Mount. No, there never was, there still isn't. There's no natural source of water there. And this isn't the way rivers work. This is a river, as you noticed, that gets deeper the farther it goes without any tributaries adding to it. You, You know, we're used to rivers getting bigger, But it's because lots of other rivers join them as as they go downstream. That's not happening here. There are no tributaries. There's no runoff. But it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and wider and wider. By the time he gets 4,000 cubits out uh, with just this one single source, it's so deep he can't cross it. And then, then, of course, there's the effect of the water, right? Trees are springing up on either bank. They're bursting with life. We're told that these trees are bearing fruit Every month. Yeah, that's not what trees do. But it's what these trees do. They're bearing fruit every month. And their leaves are medicinal. They're for healing. Fish begin to swarm in it. And it actually turns the Dead Sea, which which has the most sterile, lifeless water on the entire planet. It turns the Dead Sea into a living sea. Where everybody wants to fish. That's not the way, you, you know this, right? That's not the way saltwater and freshwater interact. When, when freshwater in our world hits saltwater, it becomes saltwater every time, without exception. But not here. So, what does this river represent? Well, Ezekiel is drawing on the image of the Garden of Eden all the way back there in Genesis 2, where a single river arises out of the garden, which of course was the original temple. The Garden of Eden was the first temple where God and man met before the fall. And there was a river that arose from that garden, a single river that watered the entire known world. And of course, what do we know about that garden? It was filled with trees that bore fruit, that were for food. But Ezekiel is not looking backwards. He's looking forward. He's looking forward to a future when God actually dwells with his people. And he's not the only one that uses this imagery. The psalmists use this. Isaiah uses similar imagery to describe a kind of abundant life that God is going to pour out on his people. And it's this water. It, it's, it's, it's this living water. So how do we get this? How do we get this amazing water that makes Dead things alive with an overwhelming and abundant life. Jesus said, ask me for it. Ask me for this water and I'll give it to you. In John chapter 4, Jesus, as you know, had a rather strange conversation with a woman at a well. He asks her for water. She thinks that's weird. And then he says something even weirder. He said, look, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. Because he says the water I give becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A little bit later in John's gospel, Jesus declares, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, and he's thinking back here amongst other places to Ezekiel 47, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. John goes on in his own gospel to explain that what Jesus was talking about was the Spirit. He says he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Ezekiel's vision, especially as it's interpreted by the New Testament, Ezekiel's vision of a life-giving river flowing from the temple is actually a vision of God's life-giving Spirit flowing out into the world and to his people, making them alive. And friends, this is, this is the way God works. God makes his people alive by his Spirit. He's always done this. This is always how God has brought life. When God first created life, it was through the Spirit who we were told there in Genesis 1 was hovering over the, the waters, over the formless creation. It's what happened in the Valley of Dry Bones that I referred to earlier. Ezekiel, As Ezekiel prophesied to the breath, the Spirit... And, and life entered into those dry bones. And friends, it's what he does now. It's what he does through the gospel, the good news of Christianity. The apostle Paul declared in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What's the letter? The letter's the law the letter is actually any law. It's it's, it's all of our attempts to create a good life, an abundant life for ourselves by our own power. And we do it all the time. We're really good at it. We make rules. We try to keep them. We set goals, and we try to meet them. And, And And just like all of our other experiences of of going after the good life, and maybe even like in a small version, like like let's have a really great Thanksgiving this year. Let's just throw a really great party. And you put a lot of effort into it and all these hopes and all these expectations. And all it does is crush you, right? Because it never turns out the way you hoped. In the gospel, God calls us to stop trying to create the good life for ourselves and instead to trust Him for it. What does it mean to trust God for the good life? Well, it means agreeing with Him first about actually how dead we are without Him. It means accepting that we actually deserve that death for trying to live without Him. That's really all sin is. All sin is 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 a commitment on our part to live without God, to live our own way rather than His way. Trusting Him then means agreeing with Him, that we deserve the death that we've brought on ourselves. But then it also means trusting that when Jesus Christ took on human life, He did it so that He could die our death for us. And give us a life that we could never attain on our own. You you, you understand the cross is is not a a tragedy. The cross is not a a miscalculation on Jesus' part. The the cross is is, is not simply an example of the brutality of the Romans or, or the hypocrisy of the Jews. No, the cross is all about God deciding to die our death for us. Three days later, Jesus got up from the dead. And that too is part of the good news of the gospel. Because if the cross is about God deciding to die for us, the resurrection is all about him giving his eternal life to us. That's the life the the gospel offers. It's the life that I want you to have today. If you're you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and and you know you're not a Christian, you, you know you're not trusting in Christ, I I want you to understand. I want you to trust in Christ. But it's not so you can keep a lot of rules. It's not so you can be really religious. It's so that you will have this life. Uh, Josh is like going to take me out to lunch afterwards. But if you'd like to talk to me about that afterwards, I'd love to talk to you. Um, So come find me or or find Josh or find find one of the other staff uh, or, or maybe just a friend that you're here with talk to them about what would it look like to find this kind of life in Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, I want you to consider, right, this is imagery of life in abundance. We've got trees that bear fruit every month. We've got a river of life that turns desert into garden, salt into fresh. We've got leaves that bring healing. You understand, right, that this life, that Ezekiel sees out in the future, This is what has already begun in us through the gospel. It's also what we look forward to. Jesus came to bring life to the full, and when he returns, we are going to know a fullness of life that is, frankly, unimaginable. And and so I just wonder, for, for you as believers, is this the vision of life that you hold out to, that you hold out to the world? Does, does it look like this? Does it, does it sound like this? Does it feel like this? Abundant life? You know, if all we have to say to our friends who are same-sex attracted, if all we have to say to kind of the, the hormone-surging adolescence, if all we have to say to the suffering, to the poor, to the broken, is don't, and not yet, then we're not telling them the truth. We're not telling them the whole truth. We're just giving them letter, not spirit. Because what the spirit brings is abundant, overflowing, cannot-be-contained life. Friends, that's what we need to be holding out to the world in our evangelism, as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now ultimately, as, as, the, as the image makes clear, uh, this, this life is not only not of this world, it's not finally fulfilled in this world. John, is, John uh, who I referred to earlier in his gospel, John picks up on Ezekiel's imagery uh, in, in Revelation chapter 22. Let me just read to you there the first the first five verses of of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, our hope for the good life can never be confined to this world. Because this world doesn't work that way. It it, it just doesn't. In this world, fresh water always becomes salt water. It never works the other way around. Now it's really trendy right now in evangelical circles to to think of the gospel as, as something that's all about bringing justice, bringing the good life, bringing a better life here and now. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. We need to not be ashamed of the fact that our hope is not finally in this world. Our hope is not finally in just making this world a better place, a more comfortable place. Our hope is for a new world, for a new heaven and a new earth in which even the earth is healed of its curse. And life actually overtakes everything and swallows up death. So don't be ashamed to talk about heaven and your hope there. Don't be ashamed to sing songs here at church about heaven, about our hope for being with Christ in a new world, in a better place. Because that is our hope. All right, enough with that first picture. There is a second picture that Ezekiel uh, provides of the good life, and it is the promised land. So we've got the river of life, and then we've got the promised land. So look at chapter 47, verse 13. This is what the sovereign Lord says. These are the boundaries by which you are to divide the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. With two portions for Joseph. You are to divide it equally among them, because I swore with uplifted hand to give it to your forefathers. This land will become your inheritance. All right, now, so what follows are the the boundaries of the land, and then we get the internal division of the land between the tribes. So so flip over to verse 21. I'm not going to read all the internal divisions. You can do that on your own. Verse 21... You are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the alien settles, there you are to give him his inheritance, declares the sovereign Lord. These are the tribes listed by name. At the northern frontier, Dan will have one portion. It'll follow the Hethlon Road to Libo Hamath, Hazar-Inan, and the northern border of Damascus. Next to Hamath will be the part of its border from the east side to the west side. Asher will have one portion. It will border the territory of Dan from east to west. Naphtali will have one portion. It will border the territory of Asher from east to west. Manasseh will have one portion. It will border the territory of Naphtali from east to west. Ephraim will have one portion. It will border the territory of Manasseh from east to west. Reuben will have one portion. It will border the territory of Ephraim from east to west. Judah will have one portion. It will border the territory of Reuben from east to west. Bordering the territory of Judah from east to west will be the portion you are to present as a special gift. It will be 25,000 cubits wide, and its length from east to west will equal one of the tribal portions, and the sanctuary will be in the center of it. Now, I could keep reading, but but the rest of the chapter kind of carries on like what I just read. The rest rest of that section of chapter 48 details the specific arrangement of the sacred precincts in the middle, where where the priests in the temple are, and, and then and then finishes, as it began, with the rest of the tribes down to the south. Now, several things stand out about this. I, I recognize that this, these kind of passages are the kind of passages that you like, skip over in your Bible reading plans, or, or you read really quickly, or you just find yourself wondering, why do I need to read this? I know all of God's word is inspired, but like, what is the point of this? Well, let me help you understand why you shouldn't skip quickly over these sections. Because several things stand out. First, this is described as a fulfillment of God's promise of inheritance to his people, stretching all the way back to Abraham. The, the boundaries of the land there are described. If you took the time to figure this out, kind of go back and look at what's said in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua, as well as uh, first, first Kings. The boundaries of the land are the full boundaries. Last seen under Solomon. The whole inheritance is being given, not just like the partial inheritance that was was given to the people under Moses. A second thing that stands out, the allocations amongst the tribes are different than before. The city and the temple... are are in their own special portion, right in the very center. That's different than the way it was before, before the city and the temple were part of Judah. Now now they're, they're in their own special portion in the center. The prince's portion is on either side, and then the rest of the tribes are given equal allotments. But the boundaries don't make sense. If you go back and look the way the boundaries were drawn when the Promised Land was first given to the people, back in the Pentateuch, Boundaries back then were drawn the same way we draw boundaries today. We draw boundaries according to topography. Borders follow rivers, they follow ridge lines, but not here. These are actually straight lines from east to west, just straight lines right across. The emphasis you see is on the equality of inheritance and the equality of access to the temple in the center. No one has a privileged position. Third thing stands out right away. Aliens are included in the inheritance. If you go back to the Pentateuch and you you read about the, the inheritance that was given, aliens were allowed to live in the land, but they were not allowed to inherit anything. Now, they are given an inheritance they are words as an inalienable grant, a gift that could never be taken away since you didn't earn it, since you didn't conquer the land, since you were given it, you can't lose it. It's something that God gives us by his grace. And of course, it's far more than real estate. It is life with God, in his presence. How do we know that's what's being given? Well, we reason from the down payment that we've received already, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on that future inheritance. If the down payment is God, then the future inheritance is God. All right, so when is this fulfilled? Well, in the biblical narrative, of course, partially fulfilled for sure when the exiles returned from Babylon, but that was just Judah, and it only happened kind of near Jerusalem. The reality is, this promise, the allocation of the land being brought into the promised land, this is being fulfilled now as the gospel goes out to all the nations, as the scattered sheep of God are brought home, as aliens find their place in the midst of God's people. And of course, it will be fulfilled when God makes all things new. So what does life in the promised land look like? Well, it looks like radical equality, right? In Christ, we all have the same spirit. We all have the same inheritance, which is God Himself. So even now, there should be no favoritism among God's people. For who are we to judge those whom God has chosen to inherit His kingdom? You can go look at James chapter 2 for that. Now, and I want to be clear equality in the body does not erase distinction. Not all the same, but it does erase discrimination. It does erase favoritism. It also looks like an expansive inclusivity, right? All who have the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ are included Jew and Gentile, every ethnicity, every demographic. No one is excluded because of who they are or what they've done. All are included, if they are included, because of who God is and because of what God has done. It also looks like a confident security. If we're in Christ, we cannot be dispossessed of our inheritance. He gave it to us. So who is strong enough to take it away from you? You? it looks like a comprehensive sanctity. At the very center of the Promised Land is is God and all of His holiness, and so that holiness orients everything around it. The entire life of the Promised Land revolves around the holiness of God, symbolized by the temple. This is what life in the new heavens and new earth will look like. A life completely oriented around God, a life completely animated by His Spirit, The question is, is this what life at the branch looks like now? Because it has begun, right? The kingdom of God has already come in Jesus Christ. This inheritance, you already have the down payment. So what does life look like at the branch? Does it look like those four things that I just mentioned? Are you marked by radical love for one another despite your differences? Do do you embrace the one?